Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. This is a brand new podcast series I am launching that revolves around everything MedTech. As always, if you have any suggestions on topics or guests you'd like to see on the podcast, please email the podcast at projectmedtechpodcast at gmail.com. My guests today are Frank Jeskalki and Connor O'Brien from Medical Alley. Frank is the VP of Intelligence at Medical Alley Association, where he is responsible for startup services, international business development, and supporting the development of Medical Alley staff. He holds a bachelor's and a master of political science from the University of Minnesota. Connor O'Brien is the membership engagement manager at Medical Alley Association, where he is responsible for general member services, business development, and engaging with their local healthcare community. He has background working with medical device startup companies, a private equity group, as well as volunteering for a number of digital health startup support organizations and pediatric cancer nonprofits. He is a graduate of Minnesota State University. In this episode, Frank and Connor talk about what is Medical Alley, what they do, how medical device innovators can use their services, and much more. This episode was recorded in late April, early May, and we do talk about the changing environment of COVID-19, so please keep the time frame in mind when listening. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Frank and Connor. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion, talking about the future All right, so Frank and Connor, uh, thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast today. You know, as I mentioned in both your bios, you guys are with uh, uh, Medical Alley. So let's start there. Um, introduction to what is Medical Alley and, and uh, you know, how do you guys support the med tech community? Yeah. Um, so Medical Alley Association is a not-for-profit trade group based in Minnesota for the healthcare and health technology industry here. We started back in 1984 by Earl Bach and the founder of Medtronic, along with a number of other uh, entrepreneurs and industry leaders, in the, primarily in the hospital and the medical device industry. And they had this idea that with the emergence of health technology and with the, the concentration of healthcare and health technology in the state, that they should have an organization that would advocate for the industry, support it, and make sure that it continued to grow. So that, that's what we've done for the, the last 35 years is make sure that this incredible community that's here, that it has a voice, that it's promoted, that it's connected, and ultimately that it can help more people live better lives. Yeah, that's really interesting because, <clears throat> you know, from a outside of... Uh... Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, you know, St. Paul area point of view, you know, when, when we talk about hotbeds for um, biotech, med tech, pharma, whatever it may be, um, when you talk about med tech, I think the first name out of everyone's mouth is, is Minneapolis, probably even more specifically. Um, but but that's um, really interesting to be in the heart of that. And, and I'm sure Medical Alley played a big role in, in making that a hotbed that it is today. I think we'd like to think so that we've had an impact. 
we've been fortunate to grow up with the industry. Mm -hmm. You know, so back in 84, Medtronic was under 300 million in revenue, which is not a small company, but compared to the 30 billion they are today, quite a bit different. And so we, we've had that good luck of growing with the industry, but also being able to work projects and support the companies in ways that, that accelerate their growth, big and small. Mm -hmm. um, and so more specifically related to, you know, uh, startup companies, um, how, how do so first of all, what kind of services, I guess, do Medical Alley offer in general? Um, and then I think, you know, let's maybe dig into um, how startups could could take advantage of the various services you offer. Yeah, I mean, I think the easiest way to explain it is to say we have three pillars. Uh, the first pillar being advocacy. Healthcare is a very regulated industry, as we all know. So it's really important for all of our members to have a seat at the table, both at the state and local level. Second, I call it evangelization. And that is, you know, there's so many issues within healthcare that they're too big for any one company to take on. But from an industry perspective, you gather them all together, there's a lot of power in the group. So it's things like, how do we draw capital to the region? How do we increase the amount of capital available to early stage startups? How do we draw talent? How do we retain talent? How do we train the next generation of talent up? So those are all the things that uh, we take on. And then the third, which is 95% of what we do, it's the day-to-day -day networking. It's, it's conversations like these. What are the dots that we can connect across the industries? Um, how, can we, how can we connect the small companies, the startups to our largest members, whether that be to their corporate development, business development, or venture wings? How do we facilitate and work on M&A activity and basically everything in between? Um, so that's kind of the broad scale of our activities. Now, how that relates to startups, you can take all three of those pillars and just it applies even to the smallest companies. So a lot, no startups, the regulations absolutely affect them. And I think, you know, from your, your background for bringing new devices, um, procedures and therapeutics, uh, both to trial and to the market, very regulated process. And usually they don't have the capacity to take that on their own. We serve as that stopgap, as in we'll step in, we'll work with you to make sure that legislators and other regulators know what your issues are and we can work to affect them. Goes down to, we wanna help you find your next generation of talent. And um, also we kind of serve as a, one thing I found really interesting when I started here was the amount of both corporate people that came to us wanting to move into the startup world and vice versa. So kind of being that, uh, interconnecting highway of different roles uh, across yeah. the industry. That's been one of, that was a very uh, interesting capacity that I found um, when I started here. And then you know, just the networking piece too. Um, you know, when you, when you look at what do startups need in the early stage, well, it's all the resources, whether that be capital or the services that they need just to get the business going. So finding great reputable vendors um, finding the same thing, thing goes for investors. So we spent a lot of time kind of both doing our due diligence on who the best uh, service providers are and then connecting them where it makes sense. So 
So all those three pillars applied all the way down to our smallest companies, all the way up to the biggest ones. And just yeah. a couple of examples that I think illustrative of it, you know, on the policy side, um, seven years ago now, we wrote legislation, advocated for it and got it passed to provide a, an angel investor tax credit that provides an incentive for angels to make investments in startup companies. Since that legislation passed, $450 million of capital has been raised. Um, most of that for healthcare related companies, but it was broader than that to the technology industry. And then wow. on the, the connection side, you know, a couple years ago, we connected a, a startup called Livio with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota. Blue Cross was looking for a technology and service platform. We thought it, what they were looking for was similar to what Livio was doing. Blue Cross ultimately ended up buying Livio and making it their platform for delivering healthcare services. We're not doing the hard work, right? We're not building the business or doing the deal, but because we make so many connections and we turn over every stone, we end up finding these opportunities to make connections that create new business opportunities. Yeah, that's, I mean, so I want to touch on that because you both talked about connections. Uh, you know, um, that is something that is just so important for uh, especially startup companies um, and, and, and new entrepreneurs who are getting into the field. You know, maybe it's an engineer, maybe it's a doctor, uh, whoever the inventor is who's maybe not in the field and embedded in it, it can be a close-knit community. Um, and, and sometimes it's difficult to, um, you know, I guess, uh, penetrate that community and figure out, okay, who are the, who are the people to talk to? Um, a lot of it's, you know, word of mouth and, and that kind of thing. But the importance of startups getting those connections early on is, is so crucial because, Time and money are such a um, factor in these startup companies' survival rate. You know, uh, getting matched up with the proper regulatory advice, the reimbursement advice, the clinical advice, the how to sell a product, uh, the key opinion leaders. So, um, you know, I think what you guys are doing is great and, and super beneficial. Um, you yeah, know, you know if I were if I were to want your listeners to have like one thing to remember, it would be exactly that. Mm -hmm. you know, if, if they're working on a project and they have a gap, they need to find a resource and they don't have it in their network, use Medical Alley's network to help find it. Yeah. We'll help you find it quickly, get you back to work, focusing on the things you need to do so that you save the time, hopefully you spend less money, and you get that product out more quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I think one of the obvious questions is, you know, and I, I think I, I think I know the answer just because I know uh, the network you guys have is <laughs> not just in Minneapolis. It's, it's mm -hmm. just global by nature. Um, and that's from working with both of you in the past, but is this only for people in Minnesota or can, can anyone take advantage of this? You know, maybe talk through that a little bit. Well, I think, you know, when you look at our member companies, you already, um, you kind of, kind of pointed to it is that 
yes, we we are, most of our companies do have some form of uh, operations in Minnesota, whether they founded here, based here, investments here, um, kind of runs the gambit. But just by the nature of the industry, most of these companies are, are across state lines, multinational, um, international companies. So we we spend a lot of time building up our networks, both on the coast and um, internationally too. Uh, Frank can dive a little more into this, but the work we do with also uh, start helping startups enter our region from Australia and in Asia and different markets um, across Europe. Uh, you know, just by its very nature of healthcare, it spans uh, pretty widely geographically. Yeah, yeah. What what I'd add to that is. You know, if, if you're a company that's in Cleveland or in San Francisco or in Melbourne, Australia, and you're trying to find resources to advance your project, we're interested in talking. The, the kind of help we can provide for a non-local company, 90% of it is about the same. The only area where we're not as useful for a non-local, for a non-Minnesota company is going to be on the fundraising side. And that's just because we tend not to know the companies that are outside of Minnesota as well. And making investor connections is such a personal thing, it's harder to do. But if you're trying to find a supplier, an advisor, some information, we want to connect with you. And if the resource doesn't exist in our network, we know our peer organizations in all 50 states around the country, as well as international groups, We'll try to help you get to that right organization who can help. I mean, ultimately, our mission is to grow the industry in Minnesota, but our motivation for that is to help patients in need. And so if you've got something that can help a patient, we're there. Right. Awesome. Um, so, you know, I think some of the other things that uh, would be curious from a startup uh, community is you know, have, have you, how have you guys seen maybe in the last 10, 15, 20 years, have you seen the startup community, you know, change in Medical Alley? Oh, yeah. You know, it's, I think, a couple of big, big changes that have happened, um, especially in the last 10 years. So one is the diversity of the types of companies. Um, historically, and still today, you know, we're a strong medical device. That's the biggest cluster, right? Home of Medtronic, um, home of 3M Healthcare, et cetera. But in the last 10 years, we've seen this explosion in digital health companies. You know, the, the largest venture-backed company in state history today is Bright Health. It's a health insurance digital health startup. Um, or digital health raised as much money as medical device for the first time last year. Um, or I'm sorry, actually raised more money. The, the trend we're seeing there is just these companies, they can get to market so much more quickly than a traditional device can. And so they're iterating faster and they're gaining traction. Um, the other big trend though, has been the type of entrepreneurs. So I'd say historically, most of the entrepreneurs in the healthcare side were people who had spent 15 or 20 years in a corporate leadership role at one of the big companies. They might have been at United Health Group or Medtronic or Boston Scientific. They'd leave and they'd start a company. That's still happening today, but we're also seeing a lot of entrepreneurs that are bypassing that 
and they're going straight into entrepreneurship right out of school or having worked at a supplier or maybe only worked a couple of years at a large company. So kind of the, the average age of the entrepreneur has been coming down um, quite a bit over the last couple of years. Wow, that's really cool. And so I, I want to touch on this digital health. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know because my first so many interviews are happening back to back to back to back to back. I'm not sure whether uh, uh, this one will be released before or after the guest I interviewed yesterday, though. Uh, his name is Duncan Turner from uh, SOSV, which is a very large uh, venture capitalist firm. And, and they really focus in on digital health. Mm-hmm. And, and we spent probably an hour discussing digital health, where it's going, especially um, you know, in this pandemic that we're currently in, um, you know, how important digital health is. So that's really interesting to hear, the, you know, you kind of touch on that because it, it's a, I think it, you know, it was, it was already becoming a hot topic uh, in the industry. And I think if anything, the current situation that the world finds itself in, it, it expedited the need for digital health and telehealth and, and those types of things. Um, so yeah, very cool to see. Um, so in terms of fundraising, you know, I, I think I want to first ask just in general, you know, what's the fundraising environment like, because you guys are so close to it. And as a follow-up question, I, I'd be interested to hear how COVID-19 has affected that, or if you've heard from investors, how it's affecting it. Cause I've heard answers all over the board from, you know, um, no, business as usual, we're still investing money. And I hear others who are saying, yeah, we're not really making investments right now. So first off, before COVID-19 and, you know, in a more normal environment, what's a fundraising environment like? And then as a follow-up, maybe how COVID's, have you seen that, have you seen that affecting it? Yeah, this is always a, it's always a funny conversation topic. So I think first, like the historical perspective for my five years in the Twin Cities and and playing around in the investment world before kind of moving over to Medical Alley, I think the amount of early stage capital available has definitely increased from when I came here in about 2015 in different forms too, both venture debt, early stage venture capital, more um, interest and kind of having a a foot down the ground here from outside investors. I think the numbers I've shown those investment dollars are increasing, the interest is increasing. Um, I think (laughs) that you always have to balance that out with, if you ask any entrepreneur, they're always gonna say there is not enough venture funding. And if you ask any venture investor, they're always gonna say there's not enough fundable companies. Um, so kind of in, oh, in the short term for how this affects COVID, um, I, this is the same thing. I've had a number of investor conversations and it, the answers are all over the map. I would say I've heard a lot more. Um, it's going to be business as usual, but I think as the market becomes more and more, um, unstabilized, I think you're going to see a, a big slowdown and in deal flow and not necessarily, there's still going to be a huge amount of undeployed capital, um, but the risk tolerance is gonna go down 
just because we don't know what the future is. And anytime things become, not that we ever do, but as things become more unpredictable, I think as you kind of see the, the tolerance for a startup going into a market that they don't understand what it's gonna look like in a year, it just, as a byproduct of that, deals slow down. Yeah, and the data seemed to already be showing that before the COVID stuff had really hit. Rock Health had put out their Q1 report and when they uh, at the end of March and when they broke it down month to month, you know, January and February were really strong. The first half of March was strong. Second half of March, they saw a pretty steep drop off in healthcare funding. And so I, I suspect Q2 will see an even deeper drop off. The, the investors I've talked to, they've said, you know, the, the telehealth side they think is a permanent change. You know, the, the genie's out of the bottle or the toothpaste is out of the tube, one person recently said, and you can't put it back in. Um, that could accelerate investment in certain types of companies where the the business model that everyone always thought made sense, right? Why do I need to visit my doc in person to have an eight-minute conversation that's going to result in them doing an electronic prescription that will be mailed to me from CVS or Walgreens, right? But it was because of reimbursement and regulation. If those continue to be waived or go away, it's likely those business models make sense, which makes them attractive for investment. Um, I think on the more general investment trends, right? That there's a lot of capital that's been deployed to go into venture capital, and that money's got to be put to work. Um, I think Connor's point is right on. It'll probably take longer, but capital doesn't like to sit unused and earning no interest in a bank account. Um, in the device world, I think a really, really important trend has been people figuring out reimbursement. You know, the, this happened really fast, even though it's been 10 years, but pre-ACA, most device companies' model was get FDA, sell. Like reimbursement mattered, but it really wasn't part of the strategic plan. Post-ACA, that changed almost overnight. And my observation is it took three, four years for companies to figure out how to build a startup in an environment where reimbursement needed to be day one. And interestingly, what, what I think that's actually done is made PMA devices more attractive. You know, there had been this big trend to do 510K, low clinical trial barrier, low regulatory barriers, low cost. I think post-ACA, PMAs actually became the lower risk investment because you were going to do a big clinical trial anyway. You were going to have evidence. You were going to have publications. You know, getting reimbursement became easier. So why not spend the money on a PMA product where, yeah, it costs you $100 million, but you sell for a billion and it's predictable versus a 510K product where, yeah, it costs you $10 million, but you don't know if it'll ever get sold or adopted. And that for Minnesota has been honestly particularly valuable because 40% of all PMA devices all time are a Minnesota company. Wow. So yeah, it's had a nice effect locally. You're not going to see 100 PMA deals, 
but we've seen more in the last two years than the prior five years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's really interesting. Um, Cause when you talk about uh, that's definitely a shift that we've seen is, mm-hmm. is from, and but it's surprising because not everyone's there um, in terms of thinking about reimbursement. I think a lot of people think there's, there's this uh, Duncan mentioned it the other day. It's like, there's like this invisible hurdle of, Oh yeah, you just got to get regulatory approval. And, and really, that's not it. I mean, especially when you're in that 510k, you might not have, it, it, it's, if it's a 510k, there's something already very, very similar to it out there, which means it's probably not, not that disruptive. I, I'm, I'm making a very uh, large generalization. I'm sure there's outliers, but, but generally speaking, it's not that disruptive a technology. If it's a de novo, maybe. Um, but, but de novo PMA, you know, it's, it is really interesting. You still have to think about reimbursement early on. It just might not be, you have to think about it in terms of, okay, how do I get regulatory approval? How do I get reimbursement? And what do I need to show in my clinical trial? So planning really early on is, is very vital for a startup company because you don't want to run a whole big clinical trial and realize you didn't prove what you needed to prove in reimbursement. Um, you know, with a 510k, it's even more important to understand the reimbursement and the codes because your technology is probably being lumped into another CPT code. So you yep. better know which one it's going to get lumped into because that's really going to affect, you know, a lot of the business aspect of, of your company. Well, and if what we've had payers tell us is, you know, 510k companies go to the FDA and they say, we're substantially equivalent. And they come to the payer and they say, we're really disruptive and different. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah. That's a hard line to walk. Um, yeah. you know, maybe 10 years ago, being incrementally improved, an incremental improvement was sufficient. Five years ago, I think you had to be clinically disruptive. I think today, increasingly, it's got to be clinically disruptive and lowers costs or you're going to have a really challenging time driving adoption and creating value. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a weird, uh, it's a weird dance you have to do, right? Mm-hmm. I'm the same as this, but I'm different. And you yeah. got to tell two different stories, you know, constantly. I think like you said, me with the PMA, it might be more expensive. It's going to certainly test the appetite of those investors. However, if that, you know, gets through the PMA process, um, maybe the path to adoption is probably clearer. M- yeah, much easier. Yeah, I mean, it's like we've seen kind of a similar trend with digital health. Whereas when digital health first started to become, you know, kind of the talk of the town all over the country, it was very wellness focused. I'm going to use this app and this wearable, and I'm going to be well, and people are going to buy it. And it turned out people don't like to buy wellness, right? They, we don't want to be sick and we generally think we're okay. I don't want to spend money to be well. I'm already well. I'm good enough. Mm-hmm. And so we've seen this shift in our digital health members, in the investment theses, where it's more and more about a specific disease and improving outcomes in that disease, which sounds a lot like a device. And then we're even seeing the companies start to pursue FDA pathways to get an indication for use on their service 
and then they can pursue reimbursement. So instead of trying to get a consumer to fork over their hard-earned dollars, they're going the traditional reimbursement pathway and the, the line between a medical device and digital health gets grayer and grayer and grayer. You know, I think kind of as a, as a broader overarching thought, it's the one thing that we continuously see is one of the biggest challenges for entrepreneurs in general and the fundraising process is having that bold, deep understanding of the market. And you can see why that would be a challenge. So, so many people we see have a deep vertical knowledge within their one sector of healthcare, whether they come out of a biotech background or a medical device, whatever it is, what they don't seem to understand is who they're actually selling to selling to, what are the value, the incentives that the payer operates under, and having that broad horizontal knowledge that will allow them to build out that, that value offer. And so that's been one of the most interesting uh, kind of features of, of the, uh, my job here at Medical Eye was A, being able to kind of play, um, try to learn that kind of vertical piece, uh, horizontal piece, mm -hmm. and then communicate that to the entrepreneur, well, hey, this is you have to understand how this sector of healthcare works if you want to um, move along those milestones as, as you're doing your fundraise. Yeah, it's actually really been a fascinating experience because our members are the payers, the providers, and the technology firms. We talk to a technology firm here, A, talk to a payer about the same thing in here, B, and then a provider would say C. And when we would ask, you know, the payer, what they thought of the provider or the technology firm's answer, they're like, that makes no sense. And it's, it's become apparent that despite the entire industry being dependent on each other, there's not a lot of empathetic understanding among the different players. And so I'd like a lot of the work that we're doing today really is just getting the payers, the providers, and the technology firms to kind of break bread and learn about each other's business models so that when they approach each other that they have a deeper understanding and can tune their business model to better engage and it's it's been surprisingly effective and surprisingly basic and simple wow yeah no that's great um <clears throat> so I think, uh, you know, some of the other questions I had directly related to this was, um, you know, are there challenges, and I think we're kind of moving into this a little bit, that you hear from some of your members? Uh, you know, are there specific ones that you hear often, most frequent? You know, probably the, the most frequent ones I hear um, have been around information on the market you know market research can be expensive getting primary feedback can be difficult and especially even setting aside covid like with all the changes that are happening in healthcare you know assumptions that used to work a couple years ago just don't hold as much anymore so that's been a big one um and then for startups it's probably it's all almost always connections to investors or to corp dev or strategic leaders at big companies for partnership discussions you know who are the right people what are they looking for how do they get that information so they can present and position themselves well 
Yeah, I hope that, you know, and that's certainly part of this goal of this podcast as well is bringing investors, serial entrepreneurs, people who run places like Medical Alley, like incubators, accelerators who can help connect those networks. You know, that, I think that's certainly, uh, I, I see a lot of those same, it's not just in, in Medical Alley clients, it's startups in general. And that's kind of where this podcast stemmed from was there's got to be a way to help connect this industry where investors can hear of new entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs can hear of investors and, and maybe you're listening to the podcast and say, Hey, that what they're looking for is what I have, you know? So, um, but then also getting people in here who have bigger networks. So, you know, I think that's, that's one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to both of you was um, to just keep building that network for entrepreneurs to come to and understand hey, there are places I can go and this doesn't have to be that hard. Yeah. And it, it sometimes can feel hard for an entrepreneur, right? They're, they're super busy, limited resources, have to be very focused. Mm-hmm. And then you, you run into a gap, you run into a wall, and now you have to stop and find that answer. The, the real power of platforms like this or platforms like Medical Alley is to shorten the time it takes to break through that wall, right? It's gonna happen mm-hmm. if you know where to turn to at least start to get an answer. It doesn't take as long to fix the problem or break through the wall. And and figuring that out early is so important because another continuous challenge we see is entrepreneurs who they have a very specific problem they want to take on. They think they have the solution. They're getting close to the finish line, and they bring that to their potential customer, and they say. It's close, it's in the area, but not quite what we're looking for. So we need you to pivot and make these additional changes or whatever it is to your product or service to actually be something that we can purchase from you. But by then they've already ran out of resources and they're caught in a tight spot of how long does it take for me to go do another fundraise or get to that next stop gap. And so a big part of what we are trying to do is help you both address those issues but also figure out what they are before you get to that point. Yeah, that's, that's great because so, so I talked to uh, one of my friends, Tim Blair, he's, he's a, a CEO of a company um, called i Vascular and he, he's also a, works with a, um, a very similar like engineering um, company down in uh, Florida called Nagel Writer. And then they have this, this really neat medical device development process. But one thing I talk about with him a lot because he's going through this with his startup now, is the exit plan has gotten longer, right? Because investors and, and strategics, they, it's not just good enough to say, oh, I have regulatory approval and here's my reimbursement plan. It's going to be all good. Now it's, okay, can you go sell that in a regional market now? So yeah, it is. I mean, thinking about you know, these plans from the beginning and how you attack it are so important. Is it going to be ironed out perfectly? No, but the fact that you're thinking about it so you don't get to a point and then say, oh, I thought we would be acquired by now. And your investors are saying, um, okay, well, I need something. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting to, to hear that because planning is just everything. You know, I was... Um talking with a corporate venture team at one of the large med device companies the other week. 
and they they said something that I've heard others say, but they, they said it, I thought, in a really succinct way, which was they'd identified one of the biggest challenges they see when meeting with a startup that wants them to invest or potentially acquire uh, the company is that the startup can articulate how they will make the acquiring company more competitive in the market. They like, we get it, the technology is good, the clinical need is there, but how does it make us more competitive in what we're doing? And it's, I've heard it in different ways, but that, that language of how does this make us more competitive is I think a really transformative way of thinking about what you're doing. Yes, it's about helping patients. Yes, it's about advancing science. But at the end of the day, that investor or that acquiring company has a business and they need to make their business more successful. And I'm, I'm constantly surprised in that I'm not an entrepreneur, I'm a nonprofits person, but it always seems like the biggest distinction between the really successful entrepreneurs and the ones that struggle is the successful ones are thinking about or starting with the market and the end, not with the technology and the project. I, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs where they start with looking for an interesting market and then they go and find a technology that solves a problem within that market. And a lot of entrepreneurs I've seen struggle have started with their invention, their technology, and spend a lot of time trying to find a market it fits into and someone who cares about that market. Yeah, that's, that's, I've heard that advice from uh, more than one <laughs> investor before, you know, and, and, and that kind of exact uh, uh, wording around it. So no, that's, that's really great to hear. Um, I think the other thing I wanted to touch on real quick and just go back to uh, the importance of of these kind of platforms like medical alley has and these networks that you can build, you know, I think that it's not, it might not be easier, but it, it, it might be a little bit easier when you're in these hotbed areas, right? Because it's just, you have a lot of like-minded folks, you know, uh, when, when you think of that, you think of like Boston, um, Minneapolis, San Francisco, um, you know, those are three that come to mind right off the bat. And I think, I don't think anyone would argue with that, that there's a lot of health innovation coming out of those three areas. And, and there's resources there for them to use. It might be easier to be in the network there because a lot of people are there, but there's also really good ideas coming out of a number of different areas, right? I mean, uh, all across the, the US, the Europe, uh, Asia Pacific, whatever it may be. Um, so I think that, you know, these kind of networks are going to be in, in, in really important to people like that who maybe don't have local resources. I mean, you could have a startup company in Minneapolis and never have to go outside of Minneapolis for resources. No problem. You know, that's not the same for a company in Cleveland, Ohio, or Columbus, Ohio, or wherever it may be. Obviously, I'm naming Ohio cities because I've lived in Ohio my whole life. But, you know, it's, uh, it's really interesting. And I, I wanted to make that point because you were talking about the networks and, and how important they are. And I, I think it's a really good point that, right, there, there are these structural advantages to the clusters where, you know, your neighbors, if you're in Minneapolis, probably work in the industry. And it's just, 
it's easy to move information and make connections. Um, but I think especially during the COVID crisis, we're all learning how to connect without being physically there. And there's probably a lot of lessons to draw from that. But I also think if you're a, if you're a startup today, it's so much more virtual than physical than it was 10 years ago. And so you, you could be a startup in Columbus, but and you're probably tapping expertise from all over the world. And even if you're a startup in Minneapolis, you're probably doing the same thing where, you know, your key doctor for a research study might be in another country. And the best engineer in the world for that product might be in Arizona. And the, the ability to tap into those networks is a superpower for a company. You know, we try to make it easier to tap into this network, but then with other organizations, it might be CROs who tend to have a really good network. It might be other trade associations. There are nodes that a company can connect with to connect into a broader community, right? So none of us have to know every person and every resource, but if we know a handful of well-connected people or organizations and you maintain the relationships with them, that can be a superpower for a startup anywhere in the world. The way I kind of look at it, at it as from a bottom-up community is, you know, so much when you're looking for resources, in the past, you were basically relying on serendipity. I'm mm -hmm. trying to bump into this person at an event. I'm trying for this one person I met to give me that right connection. And that can work. And because I've done it before, so it takes so much time and it is such a grind. Um, and when you're trying to build a product or a successful business, you just don't have that time um, yeah. to, to d dedicate yourself to that. So what we're trying to do is to take these gravel roads in between these resources and turn them into super highways where you can come to us, we'll point you in the right direction, you'll get you going fast. And really, I just look at it as increasing the speed and the volume of these serendipitous events that's what we're here for. Yeah. And so, you know, that is, that is a piece of advice I usually give to startup companies that, that I, I work with is up until now, you've probably been always the person who, Oh, I don't know about that. I got to go figure it out on my own. Oh, I don't know about that. I got to go figure it out on my own in a, in, in this kind of, you know, startup world, it's okay to say, shoot, I don't know. Um, I might know a little bit about that. Um, and I, I did that in my, my, my own, uh, you know, career is, is, is understanding early that it's okay not to know, just know who to go to, to ask and learn yeah. about it. And, and Absolutely. that, you know, dropping maybe that, I don't know if it's an ego thing or, or whatever it may be, but losing that early is, is so beneficial because there's so many smart people in this industry learn from them and, and I mean, that's a, be the expert yeah that, that's a superpower not just in start but just like in general mm -hmm. being comfortable acknowledging what you don't know and asking for help yeah you can do that right you're you're already halfway there yep yep um awesome so in terms of i gotta figure out where we are here because i think we're answering a ton of questions as we uh move along here i know we had a, a list of different topics we want to talk about and so that's how you know the conversation's flowing well mm -hmm. um in terms of you know 
let's, I want to say this one for the end. I, I want to talk about maybe some success stories from the medical alley community. Let's, let's wrap up with that one. I think that'd be a good topic to, to talk about at the end and, you know, go out on some good news, especially in the, in the, in the current landscape we're in. Um, and then maybe also, you know, the vision of medical alley. So let's, let's pause there. Let's, let's get into some current trends you see in the industry. I, I, prefer if it was related directly to, you know, med tech startup companies. Um, so, you know, I don't, whichever one of you want to start, maybe talk about some trends you're seeing in the, in the med tech startup community. You know, I think the first trend and it, it's one that gets talked about a lot, but it seems to be getting real um, is the shift to value-based care for medical devices. Um, we're seeing companies back new ventures, back products that, you know, five years ago probably wouldn't have made sense because of the business model, not the technology. You know, so remote patient monitoring and telemedicine connected to regulated devices that allow you to provide for chronic disease management and only intervene when there's an event or when there's a need. That's been talked about for a long time. Now we're seeing it happen where it's real businesses, it's getting adoption. Um, and that for our community has been a, a big one because there's so much elect electromedical devices here where they're, they're data generating, data collecting devices, but the value prop was the device, not the data. And now we're seeing the data become as big a part of the value proposition as the device and the therapy itself. That, that, that's been a big one. One area that I'm super interested in and kind of right up your alley is, you know, really, as we were talking about digital health, bringing in these tools for data observation and collection to speed up the clinical trial process and the process of, um, of laying out the marketplace so you can bring new products and services um, to, uh, to completion faster. That's something that I've seen increase um, really, really fast. And I think there's so much opportunity there because there's so much data sitting there that is not being effectively used. Um, so if, if it can be coordinated in the right way, um, I think we could really see um, some big, um, big jumps forward and bring down the prices of, of what it takes to get these products and services available. Yeah. 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 St keeping startups as a startup company, remaining lean, mm -hmm. um, yes. you know, and understanding that the team you need in place to get this to approval or whatever your, your end game is, whether it be commercialization or acquisition, that team you need in place is a lot different than the team you need in place post that um, mm -hmm. to commercialize it, sell it, whatever it may be. So, I always tell them that, and, and in my background is working with CROs, um, you know, or working directly with them uh, yeah, as an employee. Um, it's let them be that team you can turn off and on, mm -hmm. um, and and you focus on that business aspect and growing this and making those connections and figuring out a market to penetrate and and those types of of activities, um, and and having a team you can. You, you're not responsible for paying unless you're using them. That's how you save money and that's how you save costs. And that's how you spend, you know, five, six, seven million dollars to, to get to market as opposed to 20 some, you know, and, 
Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, and kind of, I, I did say like even a, a broader trend within that has been this like optimization of every step of the startup process and all the suppliers within it. Mm-hmm. Where 10 years ago, when we would get a new startup member, they'd have five to 10 employees. They just raised a pile of money. They had an office. And a lot of the work was done internally. Now we have startup members where there's a core team of two, three, four people, and they're running five companies at once in some cases. And it's because each of those ventures is at a different stage. And so they're able to turn on the resources for each of them in serial, but at different times and turn them off when they're not using them. And so for the same amount of money that they used to advance one program, they're now advancing two, three, four of them and kind of placing their bets, like building their own portfolio. We now count about a dozen incubators, accelerators, et cetera, of different types the the medical alley community that didn't exist three, four years ago. And it's because they can tap a CRO for their clinical and regulatory work. They can tap an engineering firm to help with product development. Marketing agencies have got really creative to help on that front end positioning. The law firms will make it work. The whole supply chain has optimized so that a startup almost is a project management organization more than a company, right? They're managing all of their suppliers who are executing the, the knowledge creation and the value add for it. And it's, it's been fascinating to watch that shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure there's some uh, argument to be made for, for having... Um, uh, a regulatory consultant on staff that's actual part of the team and a reimbursement and a clinical. And, and maybe that I'm sure there is an argument and I'm sure there's success stories of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but in my uh, dealing with startups, it's the most successful ones are the ones who have figured out who to bring on temporarily and not give up equity of your company and keeping that capital burn rate down and, mm-hmm. and doing those types of activities. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting shift. And I think it's, it's only beneficial to the general public um, because that means that uh, devices and technologies and are, are getting to market quicker, cheaper, which means people can get them cheaper, you know, yeah. and, and that's the ultimate goal. So that's really cool to see. Um, any other trends, um, that you guys see, you know, I know Frank, you got to lead that off Connor. Do you have, do you have any other trends that you, um, see moving in the industry? Um, you know, as it relates to, um, yeah, I, I would go back to using these different new digital health tools because that was kind of the background I came out of supporting digital health startups, um, really bringing it into these, uh, what I would call the hardcore science industries of, of biotech, of um, med device and seeing how, to, how do, um, when you look at, at uh, home care devices like IOT, the data they collect, how can we actually monetize that and offer it as a real value add that you see companies like Apple and Google investing in, um, I think there's, it's hard to predict where that goes, but I think that's the future. That's the future both within the medical device industry, within the payer community as they try to figure out 
who are their most active uh, enrollees uh, is see within the biotech community as they, as they try to speed up the both drug discovery and um, reviewing how they affect patients. I think that's the that's the future. Um, so that's one broad trend that I think we're we're even though it's been floating around for the last five to seven years, I think we are still in the first inning and there, there's so much progress up to go. Yeah, and I build on that with the non-traditional entrance to healthcare and the the breaking down of the lines between different parts of the industry. Like you you can't really be a med tech company anymore. It's you're a healthcare company because you're going to have to deal with the payers. You might be doing an at-risk model for your sales, right? It's not just them buying the device. Maybe you're guaranteeing an outcome, and if the outcome doesn't happen, right, you're on the hook for it. Um, we have on our board of directors, Best Buy. They now have a pretty large home care business, and it has a partnership with a device a company called Tito Care, which is a class two medical device that Best Buy is selling. And wow. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I don't think I could have imagined saying the words Best Buy is selling a class two medical device. Mm -hmm. That's the environment we're in today. So I think, you know, entrepreneurs have the opportunity, but also the obligation to think not just about the technology, but the, the business model that they're going to be advancing and you can innovate as much on business model as you can on the technology and in the lab today. And really creating kind of those deep vertical solutions that you might call it the, the patient journey, but creating not only a product or service, but a platform that takes them all the way through that. Those are the type of companies yeah. um, that are starting to be built. And I think that's the future as healthcare centralizes more, as we see more consolidation, um, those are the kind of solutions that you're gonna have to bring forth, which is a deeper challenge, also a huge opportunity for bigger, uh, more all-encompassing solutions. And that's a really big thing, I think, for medical device. Like quite often, the device industry is sort of the end of the line of treatment, right? By the time I get an implant, I've probably tried medical management, drugs, and a whole bunch of other things. And if none of that works, I end up on a device. Um, when I look at some of the larger companies, like especially an Abbott, a 3M, a Medtronic, they're making big plays and moving upstream in healthcare. And then we're seeing the lights of Amazon, Apple, Best Buy move downstream in healthcare. You know, there's a, a lot more market out there than just the sickest of the sick patients. And frankly, if, if the companies like Best Buy or Amazon do their job well, they might end up shrinking the ultimate size of that end market, right? If I better manage diabetic patients and they don't progress into kidney failure, heart failure, et cetera, what does that do to me as a more traditional device company? And you know, it's, it's never fun being in a shrinking market. Sure. Yeah. But it's for the benefit of, right. you know, the, the, the general population. And, and uh, that's why we all get into this industry in the first place. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Absolutely. 
Yeah. So, so one more question, then I'll get back to those other two I wanted to ask. You know, in your time around startups, and I ask this of of of, of most all guests um, because I think it's 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 easy to say, oh, this is what that company did right, but but it's it's probably more effective for the startups to know, okay, what are common errors that I need to avoid? So, in your time around startup companies, what what are the biggest errors you see young companies commit? Yeah. You know, the, the two biggest ones I see the most often, um, one is not identifying a real market and validating it up front. I did, it's see it over and over and over again, a solution in search of a problem. And a lot of time and effort gets spent trying to fill that gap. The, the second one I see a lot is discounting the cost of change. There may be a market, you may have a solution for it, but change is hard, especially in healthcare. So getting doctors to change how they do a procedure or how an insurer reimburses for a product, like all of those things take work and take time. And I've seen a lot of companies that kind of just assume because it's better, it will get adopted. And you know, the classic example is Betamax. It had better image quality and all of that and didn't go anywhere. And the same thing as we already touched on, for me, it's seeing running out of resources before they already have a full understanding of the market, who they're selling to and the changes they're gonna have to make to their product or service. And then B, when they get stuck in that spot of where they're trying to gather those resources again, the world is changing. It's changing, the, the market is changing, the, cut, the person they're selling to is changing, and they need to be able to keep up with that. So both the delays of not having a full understanding and then the inherent challenges that come from those delays um, is something I see entrepreneurs running into over and over again. Great. Um, yeah, so two questions to, to wrap it up. Um, you know, let's, let's talk about uh, success stories from Medical Alley. Um, and then also the vision of, of, of Medical Alley, you know, moving forward. Yeah, you know, one success story I'd highlight, and it's, it's probably been the biggest one in recent memory, is a company called Bright Health. Mm-hmm. They're a health insurance startup, um, started in 2016. Uh, so four years later, they're breaking a billion dollars in revenue. Wow. They've raised $1.2 billion in venture capital. Absolute rocket ship. Um, wow. And it's from a, a team of entrepreneurs who they've done this before. So one of their founders, Kyle Rolfing, he's a board member of ours. He had started a company called Red Brick, which was sold to Virgin Pulse. Before that, was involved in starting a company called Definity Health, which pioneered the high deductible health insurance plan. They almost created 40% of the health insurance market in the country, and now they're doing it again. That's, that's probably, in my mind, one of the biggest recent successes. You know, what I like to, because I have personal connection to it, and it's more of a geographic focus, but I look at Rochester. So we're a Twin Cities-based organization, but we call it all Minnesota. You think of a place like Rochester where Mayo Clinic is based and 100 Years of Excellence, famous name, (laughs) already a a huge win over the last century. 
but in looking at the investment that they've made both from a state level male clinic and changing the way they view the world and how they do things of encouraging more clinicians to move into i would say a more entrepreneurial field and investing the dollars in and create an environment where they can be successful and then as you have that that knowledge trickles up to everything that we're doing in the twin cities so people coming out of a biotechnical background, bringing that clinician focus and, and starting new companies and encouraging the, the community to, to look at that. And I look at biotech and we, we touched on this at the very beginning of the conversation is we all know the coast, but we actually have a really strong biotech community here with a little over a hundred of our members are in that field and growing fast. And I really think it is, it's, it's these, the good practices that we've seen over a hundred years and then also the most recent investments over the last five years and bringing in these new, the digital health, the combinations of that biotech across the industry. Um, I look at that as a bottom up community for me and then us working to accelerate that. I think that's a huge success story that is still ongoing. And um, in the next five years, we're gonna see how that pines at, uh, pans out as we create more companies and scale them. Yeah, companies, if they're not paying attention to what's coming out of Rochester today, they're missing out. So many new startups um, and startups in areas that we're not as traditionally known for. So it's not cardiac and neuro, it's ophthalmology and imaging and urology, it's biotech, it's digital health, and at just an incredibly rapid pace. Um, yeah, the Rochester community has been amazing to watch. Awesome. Um, great. So, you know, to wrap it up, uh, uh, visions for, you know, Medical Alley moving forward. Yeah, we, so we have a really simple and clear vision. It's that Medical Alley will be known as the global epicenter of health innovation and care. And we think it is the global epicenter, but we want to make sure the world knows that and that every day when people wake up, if they're thinking about healthcare and where to innovate, that they think about Medical Alley. Just like if you, you look at your iPhone, you know, that's made by Apple, Apple's in Silicon Valley. We want it to be, if you're in healthcare, you think of Medical Alley and that's our vision. Awesome, great. Well, listen guys, um... It's, it's been almost an hour, maybe a little over an hour, somewhere close to that. I appreciate uh, you guys taking a large part of your day to, you know, talk to me about this and um, be on the podcast. And uh, I appreciate you guys' time. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for having us. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I owe a special thanks to Justin Carolyn, who designed the graphic for the podcast, and Eric McCloskey, who wrote the music. If you have any questions or comments for Frank, Connor, or myself, there is a link to our LinkedIn pages in the show notes, along with a link to Medical Alley's webpage. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review, and feel free to visit the webpage www.projectmedtech.com or email us at projectmedtechpodcast at gmail.com.